Okay, Sunday, May 21st, 2023. I want to welcome you all to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as he welcomes you to, uh, to worship him in his sanctuary. Brothers and sisters, I hope you had a great week. Uh, we're missing a few bodies today, uh, so if you could uh, just keep them in prayer, uh, those, those bodies who are not here. Uh, some are traveling, some are unfortunately uh, under the weather, and uh, yeah, so they're not able to be with us. Um, it's a long list of names, so I won't list them all. Um, I'm sure you can look around and tell who's not here. So if you just keep them in prayer, that'd be fantastic. Um, we're going to begin with the Apostles' Creed. Let's rise from our seats and recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin our time and as we prepare our hearts in prayer, I'd like to call you to worship with Psalm 25. Um, this was a psalm that, as I just read it over and over again this week, um, it spoke to me in a multitude of ways, really. Um, and I just felt like this was a, a proper and uh, appropriate psalm to share with you this week. Um, if it helps, can close your eyes and listen to the words of the psalmist. This is Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. Now, those of you who are keen on our services will have noted this is the exact same psalm we read last week. I read it to you again this week because it just couldn't escape my mind. And I'd like to read it to you, or I wanted to read it to you one more time. Again, to know his ways, to be taught his paths and to be led in his truth. Uh, that has been my prayer for all of you uh, throughout the week, and I hope that it will come to fruition. So, with that said, let's take time uh, to pray. And a prayer that I'd like for you to lift at this time is a prayer of confession of sin. And so I, I read to you 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With that in mind and with that knowledge and understanding of that truth and faith in Christ, who is our mediator. Let us confess our sins to him as we come before a holy God, as he calls us to worship and invites us to worship him. And so with gratitude and humble hearts and with a posture of humility, let's pray silently in our hearts, and then we'll begin our time. Let us pray. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've completed 107 um, weeks of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, we will now begin the Heidelberg Catechism. Those of you may not be familiar with the Heidelberg, um, I'll give you some information about it as we kind of go. 
Uh, but I think it's, it would be nice for us to begin with question. I mean, we have to begin with question one, but I think it would be nice for you, your introduction to the Heidelberg to be the very first question. So let's read, first, uh, let's read uh, the first question. And the first question reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, of course, this past week we lost Dr. Tim Keller. And so uh, it was, a, at least for me, a, a, a week to just kind of reflect on life and death. And uh, I'm sure you've seen yeah, numerous amount of posts and quotes uh, from Dr. Keller. Uh, but let's read the answer to this question um, as we ponder what it could be. Now, it's a long one, so bear with me. I'm not going to need to explain too much because the answer itself is so thorough. But let's read the answer, or I'll read the answer for you. So the question was, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer reads, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Um, I think this is going to fit really nicely. Um, actually, I, I know it will fit nicely with our sermon. I wrote the sermon. So um, it, it's fantastic how sometimes these things just work together um, beautifully in synchronization like that. So I hope that answer was thorough and um, that you're able to grasp what it is teaching us. I think it's a wonderful gospel um, reminder to us all this day as we gather together as a church. Allow me to pray, and then our worship team will lead us in a time of song. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, as we ponder the question, what is our only comfort in life and death, we're reminded that whether it be in life or in death, uh, that it is uh, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, the one who has fully paid for our sins by his precious blood, that he has set us free from the power of, devil, of the devil. He preserves us in such a way that without the will of you, not a hair can fall from our heads. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. And so we thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in us to regenerate us and then to assure us of eternal life and make us heartily willing and ready from the moment we came to faith to the moment we breathe our last, that we live our life for you. And we fear not death, because death is simply but a door to our Savior, Lord Jesus. God, we thank you so much for this time that we have together as the church. Uh, we're missing a few bodies, and Lord, we pray for them, whether it be physical healing or just safety as they travel, be with them. Uh, those who are abroad, be with them as well, God. Would you just care for them and um, protect them from whatever harm may come their way. Lord, for uh, those of us here, as we go to your word and as we seek its truth, I hope and pray that there will be a keenness and an eagerness to know and learn, but also an eagerness to want to grow in our holiness, an eagerness to want to be able to uh, continue to live out our lives in a much more Christ-like manner. Father, I know there's so many times we suffer and uh, that we struggle with this aspect of our faith, and sometimes it's just easier to read a book. It's just easier to read scripture, to contemplate it, to think about it, and to just know its truth instead of trying to really live that out in our lives. But may those things be paired together, that our knowledge and our activity would be one. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the brother and sister next to us. We thank you for their faith and salvation, and we thank you for uh, the companionship we have as a church, the partnership we have as a family. And we ask that, Lord, that you would continue to watch over this church and care for it. Uh, protect it from evil, protect it from false teaching, and uh, protect it from any harm that may come to it. We thank you and praise you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's rise from our seats as we sing together.
of Ages, Clef for Me. Uh, what a wonderful song. Um, I didn't think they would sing it this week as soon as I recommended it. Um, it's a song that came to my mind as I uh, heard of Dr. Keller's passing. Uh, some of his final quotes. thought it was uh, quite fitting. Um, glad we could sing it together today. Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, please turn it to Mark 6 as we read verses 14 to 30. It's Mark 6, verses 14 to 30. Last week we looked at, um, I should really recap, two weeks ago, beginning of chapter 6, we saw Jesus teaching in Nazareth, his hometown, rejected by his hometown folks, and uh, we saw some of the unfortunate, um, I guess, response, uh, or the way that he was received by uh, those who knew him best. We then see, or saw, last week, the sending out of the 12 disciples, uh, two by two, into villages and towns, and uh, they were able to heal people and cast out demons, right? Um, and they're equipped, of course, with the divine authority and power of Christ. And so we focused on that. We focused on uh, missions being the divine work of Christ and through the power of Christ, not through us, right? That it's nothing that we bring um, that is able to cause or create, um, I guess, success in missional effort. So that's something that I think was uh, important for us to be reminded of when it comes to missions. Today, we read of uh, an unfortunate, I guess it, it's, um, this is a week where I really pondered death. For, uh, it's just one of those weeks. Um, today, we're, our text is going uh, to tell us, um, the t or Mark's telling, of the death of John the Baptist. So, let's read it together. Mark 6, verses 14 to 30. It's a little bit of a longer text, but bear with me. Um, I'm starting in verse 14. You can follow in your Bible. This is the word of God. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are working him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and, kept, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Amen. What a gruesome tale, is it not? Um, There's so many, I mean, just so many elements to this story that just reek um, Netflix documentary, right? Um, you have this king who is clearly you know a tyrant and psycho and insane um, and evil and he has this party this banquet let alone his birthday party I guess and um, he married his brother's wife which is already weird and then the daughter comes in and she's clearly doing some kind of sexual dancing for them she's probably not really that old so you have these old creepy men he's being aroused by the daughter of his brother's wife whom he married I mean, this, this story is just grotesque. Um, 
He's so pleased and probably in drunkenness asks, what do you want? I'll do anything for you, right? And um, her, he, she goes to her mom. And you would think a mom with some, you know, adulthood in her life would request something more reasonable, but her request is the head of John the Baptist because she hates him so much because he had rebuked them. And the girl comes in and asks for the head, and that's exactly what she receives. This king executes John the Baptist, beheads him, offers it on a platter. She proudly brings it to her mother. And that is the story, the death of John the Baptist. Grotesque tale. And so appropriately, our sermon title is The Head of John the Baptist. There's an abrupt shift in Mark's storytelling in today's passage. The connection is not entirely clear at first read, and the intention of Mark is not obvious at first glance for some Bible readers. Those of you who are keen readers of Mark will have noticed this, the presence of yet another Markan sandwich. We read in verse 7 to 13, last week, or we read in verse, verses 7 to 13, the sending out of the 12 onto their first missionary endeavor by the authority of Christ. And then in verse 14, we see a sudden and certainly no subtle transition into the narrative of John the Baptist's gruesome death. Look at verse 14, and you see the subtle hint that the missionary effort of the disciples had perhaps reached the ears of Herod, or at least those around him, as the name of Jesus was beginning to spread through the missional efforts of his disciples, of Christ's disciples. Perhaps this was the purpose of the trip all along, the purpose of Jesus sending them out. But what we get after this is quite peculiar. We get what Hollywood would call a flashback. As Herod ponders his past actions and Mark retells it, actions that were both devious and truly evil, and he himself knows this, it is interesting that the mention of Christ and that the name of Christ conjured in him a fear of John the Baptist. There's a lot to unpackage in this text for us today. To really grasp and understand this text, we really need to do a lot of careful reading, analysis, and connecting. But here's the question I'd like to hang over your heads as we embark on our exegetical work on the, on the text today. So keep this question in mind. We're going to come back to it in our conclusion. What does the mission of the Twelve have anything to do with John the Baptist's death that Mark would sandwich it like this? Like, wh what is the connection there exactly? Mark clearly had an intention, and so he saw a connection between the two. He was inspired to write this narrative into the other, and I believe that is where our understanding of the text and its lesson lies. So with that, let's begin our endeavor. I have a couple points to our sermon today, three in total. The first is, who is Jesus? The second, fear of holiness. And the third, John the forerunner. It's three things, who is Jesus? Fear of holiness, John the forerunner. Let's look at the first one. And we're looking at verses 14 to 16. It's the first three verses. Who is Jesus? As the message and name of Christ grows in fame and spreads across the land, we're told that the so-called King Herod, and I put it in air quotations because he really is no king at all, heard of it, heard of Christ, heard of this missionary, or so this missionary work and the message that it was proclaiming, and uh, he heard of it in some way. Now, what this means is unclear in terms of how he heard of Jesus, but the fact remains that the news of Jesus and his reputation had reached Herod. Now, before, before we get to who Jesus is, we need to clarify some things about who Herod is, because I think there would be some confusion in you um, if you're not totally familiar with the Herod family tree. So we need to take a moment to examine Herod. Now, in Scripture, there are actually two distinct figures uh, that you are likely familiar with that are named Herod. And they're mentioned in, in, all the, in the Gospels. Both Herods are in the Gospels, but some, most Christians don't distinguish the two. They think the Herod in you know, the earlier chapters of Luke and Matthew are the same Herod that we're dealing with here. And they're not. Okay? So just keep that in mind. The first Herod is found, as I mentioned earlier, the earlier chapters of Matthew and Luke, uh, before the birth of Christ. So before the incarnation, and he is Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Okay? He is the father of Herod Antipas that we're dealing with today. 
So Herod is the father of Herod, which just makes everything confusing, right? Like just naming your kids the same name is just not a great idea, but in the Middle East, it's very common. Actually, in the Middle East, they don't really have last names. So when I go on missionary trips to like uh, the Arabia, they go by, they um, associate like in the Bible, they'll be like Max, son of Amos, right? Like that's how they refer to one another. That's the family name. But they, but then like you might have like, um, you know, someone named Max with a father named Amos. Like it's very, there's only a few names for guys, right? Um, and so to really distinguish everyone, they go up to the grandfather. So they'll be like, Max, father of Amos, father of, I don't know my grandfather's English name actually, but I'll just make it up, David, right? Um, so that's how they would distinguish themselves, right? Um, so the, the last names that you kind of like see and in, in, in use in the Western world, it's just kind of made up. Like they're, they're not real like family names, right? Um, so this is Herod, son of Herod, who might also be son of Herod, who knows, right? Um, so that's kind of how it worked. So we have two distinguished, uh, two distinct Herods. Herod the Great, pre-incarnation, and then Herod that you're familiar with, Herod Antipas. They are not the same Herod. Herod the Great was a ruthless tyrant. And the more interesting thing about the kingship of this family is that it's a fraud. It's a fraudulent kingship. It's a fraudulent kingdom, in fact. In fact, he's not really a king at all. Neither Herod the Great nor Herod Antipas are actual kings. They're self-proclaimed kings, if you will. Now, by Roman standards, they were known as tetrarchs, men who were entrusted over four regions of a province of the empire. The true overseer of the Galilean region was really Pontius Pilate. And so both Herods did, in some sense, have political power and influence granted to them by the Roman Empire, as well as wealth. They had wealth, and they had, you know, authority over certain regions to a certain degree. But they're like the first sort of degree of governance, if you will. The thing to note here is this, that they are not truly kings. They're not true kings. Just political authorities empowered and employed by the Roman Empire. Let's keep that in mind. Now, just as the seas that we read of in Mark 5, just as demons in um, Gennesaret, and the afflictions of humanity, Jairus' daughter and the woman who, couldn't, who was bleeding for 12 years, just as all of those things yield and obey to the word, of Christ, as we've seen, we see today that even the most powerful of men tremble at the King of Kings. It really puts focus on the difference between a fraudulent king, a fake king, and the one true king. When an imposter meets the one they are impostering, they're faced with the reality of their fraudulence. Herod Antipas is no different than the garrison demoniac who feared men of God and the son of man and son of God because he himself knew not only the righteousness of God but his own own righteousness as well and yet and yet although that knowledge was there his own unrighteousness and the righteousness of God and men of God he did not live a life of faith and repentance now what does this teach us this is really critical keep this in mind here again is the inclusion of Mark and irony to teach the Christian this that knowledge of the correct things means nothing without faith The devil, certainly, perhaps one of the most advanced theological minds, biblically sound in terms of knowing scripture, if you will, but damned to hell because he has no faith or love for God. It reveals to us also this, that a high regard of who Jesus is or who Jesus might be means nothing, for it is an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. I will pause, however, to give Herod his due and his props. Although his high regard of Jesus was lacking for salvation, it was still higher than the hometown folks of Nazareth. There's a little bit of irony there too, right? Mark's a really, really clever storyteller when he really started reading his gospel. Now look at how Herod ponders whether or not Jesus is a risen John the Baptist. Oh, he's convinced. Here's all these rumors. He's Elijah, he's a prophet, he's this. But he comes to the conclusion, he must be John, the one who I beheaded. He's come back to haunt me because I've done evil before the eyes of God. And he has resurrected in the form of this Jesus. <laughs> right? His guilt stems so deep in him 
the very thing he fears is the resurrection of the man he killed. And the irony oozes again for Jesus one day be what? A resurrected man. But not John, not a resurrected John, the Son of God. But on that day, many will not believe. Many will not believe that Jesus resurrected. Herod ponders whether John has come back from death, and although Jesus will accomplish that very feat, it will be disregarded as fact by most. Seeing Jesus as a good man, a godly teacher, a prophet, or even a resurrected one at that is not enough for salvation or credit towards it. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came, died, and rose for your sins. Fear of holiness, verses 17 to 20. We see a trembling here from Herod. I mentioned previously that Herod had knowledge of the holiness of God and the unholiness of his own life. And his unholiness is all too well documented through the annals of history and scripture. Herod Antipas was a wicked man, a tyrant like his father, power-hungry and consumed with the luxuries of wealth and riches, and apparently coveting his brother's wife. Yes, he plastered the temple with gold and lavished it with richness, but it was all for his own glory, not God's. It also did not follow the Old Testament guidelines of the temple construction. Herod was a man for himself. But who could put on the mirage of a life that upheld some religious conviction and understanding? I was watching this video of um, John Piper this week, uh, reflecting on the last email exchange he had with Keller before he passed. And they were contemplating, uh, I believe it's the Gospel of John, is it? Is it John or Luke, where the 72 are sent out, they go on a missionary trip, they come back, and they report, right? And they're like, hey, we cast out demons. We did, we did healings. We did all these amazing things for God, right? And they're like celebrating all of these things. Uh, but in the scripture, in the text, it says, uh, Jesus rebukes them in a sense and says, no, the thing you should be celebrating, the thing you should really be in absolute awe of is the fact that you are known by God. And so Keller and Piper were exchanging uh, emails and they were talking about this text and apparently um, as they reflected on his... I guess his work, his ministry, his, his legacy for the church and his life as he served the church and shepherded, you know, his flock, that that's what he hopes uh, in, that the joy that he's abundant in on the very, you know, brink of death, that the joy that was consuming his heart was that he was known by God. And he, so he was ready for death. And so Piper shares in that video, it is not service we celebrate, but salvation. But so many times the church is so focused on our acts of service and not what it is in response to God's saving of us. That was a little bit compelling. Piper says some good things once in a while. <laughs> Even Richard's got to admit that. But Herod was not such a man. He was all for himself, his own glory, his own fame. He lavished the temple simply to lavish himself. In a way, he accomplished his goals. He's recorded in scripture. Millions of people throughout human history have read his name, have read of his deeds, if you will, remember him in, throughout history. But as we learned prior, an incomplete faith is an incomplete gospel. It means nothing for that soul, but for that soul that believes in these things. It means nothing but eternal damnation. Incomplete is incomplete. It reminds me of Judas Iscariot, who sold Christ, and even and even that sin could be atoned for by the blood of Christ if you believe it. Right? We believe that the blood of Christ can cover all sins. Certainly, it could cover the sin of Judas Iscariot for selling Jesus to his death. Could have repented, theoretically, if we think about that. If only Judas would believe and repent, but he did not, and he succumbs to his own guilt, and he takes his life in fear and in regret. It makes me wonder what a world in which Judas repents would look like, what the scriptures would look like if it said Judas Iscariot actually came to faith. 
became one of the most prolific disciples ever. It's like, I, I, I sold Jesus to his death, but I believe in the Son of God. What that story would look like makes me wonder. But it should not escape our minds that no sin cannot be covered by the washing blood of Christ. Herod, we discovered here today, or Herod, we discover today, also lives with immense guilt, which causes great fear. And it stems from his execution of John the Baptist, a man that was well regarded in the Jewish community, even among the religious elite. John was a man of God, and in Israel, no reputation uh, than that could be greater, to be considered a man of God. And so imagine being the man who took the man of God's life. You might think that such an act by Herod would have been provoked or warranted, or that John had done something to, to, to lead Herod to do such a thing. But we read today's story, nothing, just some girl dances, and she asks for his head. But Mark tells us of, his, of the ridiculous circumstances, right, that led to such a heinous act. And we're told that Herod Antipas desired to marry the wife of his brother, and he did. Herodias was that wife, and she too desired to be with Herod. Perhaps she wanted to be royal. For reasons unclear, but the tone points to indecency at best. In verse 20, we're surprisingly told that Herod used to enjoy listening to John, meaning that there was a prior relationship of teaching of some sort. Now, the details of this relationship are not certain, but Herod had heard John teaching, and he enjoyed it, even though he was being rebuked. But then, to have that teaching turn to rebuke against his fleshly desire for Herodias must have triggered his anger, perhaps his fear. And the root of that fear is even more perplexing considering what we know of Herod. Herod feared harming or killing John because he regarded him as what? A righteous and holy man. So he sees this man as a righteous and holy man. He understands that this man is a man of God. He's giving him godly advice. He's telling him what not to do. And instead of responding to that with obedience, he responds with what? Fear, trembling, I'm imprisoning you. I'm taking away the thing that's creating an obstacle for me to do the very thing that I want to do. You know, I really resonate with John in a lot of ways, and I don't mean to like, make this a rebuke of any of you. But as pastors, one of, our most one of the most difficult aspects of our job is giving spiritual advice to people. And what do we mean by spiritual advice? I don't mean like, you know, per se, like, this is exactly how you live out your life. But when someone comes and says, do you think this is a good thing? Like, do you think I, should, I ought to do this? Or do you think I ought to live my life in this way? I've given countless advice to people of all ages, really, except for like really senior people. <laughs> but like really, I've given like countless, countless advice. I could probably count how many people on my hands who actually take that advice and listen to it. Why? Because even the Christian ultimately chooses to do what they want to do. You know why people come to me for advice? In the hopes that I say, do it. Do what you want to do. And then they can say, Max authorized it. It's certified by Max. And here's John the Baptist saying, no. This is detestable before God. And what's Herod's response? I know you're godly, and I know you're righteous. I'm throwing you in prison. So you can shut up. Herod's not too far from us in terms of action. Herod feared harming or killing John in the end. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that later he will send Jesus back to Pontius Pilate claiming he found no fault in this man, did not want blood on his hands. Here is that knowledge at play again. A simple and general knowledge of the righteousness and holiness of the things of God and the people of God. And Herod feared this. But why? Because he saw life as an antithesis to such things. I meet quite a few people who have left church, renounced their faith, go out, and live their lives in sin. They grew up in the church. Later, they're gone. And yet, and yet, still live with this in themselves. A conscience, that's a conscience in their minds that tells them that their lives are unholy. Every person that grew up in the church, heard the gospel at one point, was part of the church, an active member of the church, 
and participated in the church and then left the church when I asked them, so are you like completely gone or like what's the deal? And they say, I know what I'm doing is wrong. That's the first thing they say. They tell me the same general story. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care anymore. I know, but my heart wants something else. And I want to live this way, but I know it's not good. The Christian is no different in living in hypocrisy, but the difference lies in repentance. The difference lies in pursuit. If you had two students who wanted to get an A on a test, both knew that they had to study hard to get that A. But one student chose not to study and to be lazy. Some of you are kind of fidgeting their fingers at this moment. The other works really hard and studies a lot. Let's say the first student absolutely fails, deservingly. The second gets an A. Studied hard, got an A. They both had a desire to get an A. They both, they both knew what it took to get an A. But only one followed through despite their desire to not study. They had moments of procrastination and temptation throughout that journey to quit, even. But they persevered and worked towards their goal. So let me ask you this question. Whose desire was most genuine? As soon as I asked that, most, most of you, if not all of you, would say, well, of course, it's the second person who actually studied. But I'll tell you this. I think both desires were equally genuine. I think both truly, genuinely wanted an A. But here's the difference. Only one could handle what it took. Faith and repentance are the markers of the believer. In, I think in Scripture we see this faith, repentance tied together. Faith, of course, being preeminent. One flows from the other. Repentance flows out of faith in God. Faith encourages repentance, if you will, especially when it is most hard. Where Judas ends his life in guilt, Peter, what does he do after denying Christ three times? Declares his love for Christ. Before the holiness of God, the unrepentant will tremble, as we see Herod doing. And one day that will be for all. And before that same God, the repentant, the saints, will bow in humility, in gratitude, and in awe. Because we know we don't deserve it. Finally, John the Forerunner, verses 21 to 29. We observe back in Mark's initial introduction of John the Baptist in chapter 1 of Mark, that John, in fact, was and is a forerunner to Christ. Remember in the spirit of Elijah? This is what was meant by his preparing the way of the Lord. Now what we observe in today's text is that John's forerunning of Christ was played out even unto his own death. What we mean by forerunner is this, that John's life and ministry pointed to Christ. It foreshadowed him, if you will. He himself not being Christ, nor as complete or sufficient in Christ in efficacy or application, but he himself foreshadowing the work that Christ would accomplish ultimately climaxed the cross and the empty tomb. John's death narrative emits a tone of what? Sorrow and unfortunate circumstance. It feels unjust as a man of God doing the work of God. He is arrested and imprisoned and then murdered without reason or cause. Some foolish birthday party. The undertones of the forerunning are obvious, are they not? It points towards what? The coming arrest, trial, and death of Jesus Christ. Not to mention that the death of both John and Jesus come by what? The authority of a political leader who succumbs to outside voice and influence. Herod yields to his niece and his party guests, Pilate to the Jewish crowds, men of so-called power and authority cowering at the demands of those lesser than them sending an innocent man to death undeserved just to do what? To save their own face and their own butt before others. John's ministry was one that constantly and consistently pointed to Christ. His end is not grand, it is not heroic, and it is certainly not epic for such a man of his stature. But alas, so too is the death of Christ. This should teach us something about our own Christian lives, brothers and sisters, that our pursuit ought not to be legacy, fame, accolade, heroic remembrance by others, we don't need to make a show of our lives for the sake of increasing our names. Like John, our lives instead ought to point to the name that ought to be heard and remembered, the name of Jesus Christ. John foreran Christ, but in many ways he is a forerunner for you and I, for the lives that you and I ought to seek to live as well, especially when it comes to pointing our lives to Christ. 
Which leads me to our conclusion. The last verse of today's passage closes that Mark and sandwich. It's the second slice of bread, if you will. Notice that Mark's, Mark refers to them in verse 30, the 12, as the apostles. Whereas earlier, they were the 12. When they're sent, they're the 12. When they return, they're the apostles. Only here and in chapter 314 does Mark refer to the disciples in this way. The very men who will later carry the task of what? Establishing the church and proclaiming the gospel throughout various regions of the world. Mark calls them upon their return to uh, the apostles. Perhaps to make an indication that the call upon these men will be to be active participants in God's mission. Verse 30 is a sudden return back to the narrative of the sending out of the twelve. Right? We're reading about this death of John the Baptist and all of a sudden, abruptly, it's like, and then they came back. Right? It's very abrupt if you read it. Almost like it's stitched together in a way where it's like, this doesn't fit. Unless you read carefully and understand what Mark is trying to teach us. We are abruptly reminded by Mark of where we left off in Christ's ministry. But the question I hung over your heads earlier was this. What exactly is Mark's intention in sandwiching these two stories? How does the mission of the twelve connect to the death of John the Baptist? Here's how James Edwards puts it in his commentary. Listen carefully. The sandwich structure draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into an inseparable relationship. What Edwards observes in the text is Mark's desire to convey that participation in the mission of God comes with great risk and great cost. Now, as we continue to read on in Mark, we're going to find those words. If you desire to follow me, you must carry your cross right, daily. Right? But the cost of discipleship is everything and nothing less than that. It comes at a great risk and a great cost. And what he also sees is Mark's intent to teach his audience that Jesus' invitation to follow him, to be a disciple of him, is coupled with an invitation to do so at the total cost of one's life. This does not mean that becoming a follower of Jesus means to pursue death or to die right away, actively for his sake. Where's the most what's the most dangerous thing I can do as a Christian? It's not what we're telling you to do. But that one who does truly follow Jesus understands this, that death could be a part of that equation, and it is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Look at John, the Baptist. He did not regard his life more valuable than the proclamation of truth to even the most powerful of men. He did not say, I will do this as long as it does not cost me everything. The proper attitude of the believer is instead to say this, that I will do this even though it will cost me everything. Because it is worth everything. This is a lesson that every one of the apostles will learn. So from John to the apostles and now to us, the church, the teaching is one and the same, that life in Christ is death to all other things. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This week, um, I've mentioned it too many times now, but we lost a teacher of God's word, and some would say prolific, I would say so. I mean, a man who has shaped and influenced the 21st century church and has been ambassador for Christ in so many different circles of the secular world, uh, Dr. Tim Keller. And I know, I know, some of his views are not sound, some of his views are not you know, classically reformed, or to your liking, perhaps. Man loved Jesus. Isn't that obvious? He loved Jesus. And he did his best as pastor and teacher and shepherd of his church. Um, we mourn our loss of Dr. Keller in this world, but as believers, we celebrate with heaven for their gain of a spiritual giant. I end today's sermon, I think appropriately, with a quote from Dr. Keller. In fact, it's just one of his final prayers on this earth and then his final words on this earth. One of his final prayers uh, leading up to the point of his death he prayed this with his son. I think it's just so beautiful. It almost brings a tear to my eye, but I don't cry that often. This is his prayer. I'm thankful for all the people who prayed for me over the years because he had cancer. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me 
but I am ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Let's pray to God. He then, literally on the last, like, when he knew, like, I'm going to breathe my last now. These were his last, this was his last action and his very last uh, set of words. He was alone with his wife, Kathy, if you know her. He kissed Kathy on the forehead. And his last words were this. There is no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. And I thought about this this whole week as I was in Chicago. Brothers and sisters, do you see how men and women of God die? It's not heroic. It's not triumphant. It's not a show. It's not like when the queen dies. Christians die well. They die with hope. They die with eagerness and with peace and with abundant joy. May you all be blessed to stay and be compelled this moment to know that as followers of Jesus, we live out the time we have on this earth with incredible hope. Incredible hope. And we die with even greater hope. So live it all all for Christ and all for him. Let us pray and reflect on what God has taught us. Let's rise from our seats and respond together as we sing together.
working on us so that it has nourished our souls and has equipped us to live our lives, compelled to live our lives out for Christ, even unto death. Uh, that death is nothing to fear, um, but rather simply uh, and just uh, an obvious um, end to all lives. And we know that for us, uh, death is no end. And rather, it is beginning of eternity with you forever. And so we thank you um, for teaching us a beautiful message today through your word. Um, we ask that the provision you give to us in our lives, the resources and various things um, that we're gifted with, that we would be faithful stewards of these things. And so we give to you this offering, Lord God, and we ask that this offering would be used uh, for the ministry of this church and the ministry of your kingdom um, in this place, especially in this city that needs the gospel so. So God, would you continue um, to uh, give us joyful hearts and cheerful hearts in giving, um, and that um, we would never be hesitant to do so. And so we thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm um, just going to have a quick time of announcements. Wow. I'm just going to, this coffee was unreal. It's like, I might have fallen like literally down if I didn't have the coffee. Craziness. Coffee's a crazy drug. Okay. Um, first of all, welcome, brothers and sisters. Welcome to our church. Uh, I know we're missing some bodies, um, so again, just please, um, if you have a chance, lift up, lift up a prayer for those, of, uh, for those of our brothers and sisters who are unfortunately absent with us. Some, I know, are working. Some are a little bit under the weather, uh, feeling a little bit sick. Some are traveling. Some, like Mikey and John, are driving across <laughs> um, North America right now to get here. So, yeah, uh, God's be with them and <laughs> peace and hopefully safety. Um, but yes, welcome to all of you. Uh, offerings can be sent to Ace. We have our basket in the back, and so it's a big wooden box, and the envelopes are back there with a pen. So if you'd like to give that way, please feel free to do so. We also have e-transfers to sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com. You can give that way as well. Uh, please join us for fellowship. I, I told the KM, I don't know if you know this, but they went to Niagara today, so I was like, yeah, you don't have to prepare food. You know, I'll just get everyone to get their own thing. But... You know, they like feeding us, so there's food. <laughs> so, you know, there's going to be more food, more than enough now, because there's a bunch of people missing. Um, so please join us for um, some fellowship at the other building. We can use some hands uh, in helping to set up as well as cleaning. Um, be very much appreciated. Um, unfortunately, uh, just due to some uh, illnesses, our I think softball is going to be a little bit hard today, so just keep that in mind. Um, and we don't have a game for, like, the first two weeks, which is, like, crazy. It's wild. I hate the schedule. It's, like, so stupid. But it's, like, benefiting the Hawaii guys, which is, like, even worse. I was hoping they would, <laughs> I was hoping they would just miss every game, but uh, good for them. <laughs> but anyways, um, so keep that in mind. Um, DGs, um, please continue to meet up, gather, be plugged in, enjoy them. Um, in my, like, wildness, I landed here this morning, I, I Ubered home, I, like, showered like crazy, grabbed as much kimchi in my mouth as I could, and came here, and I just forgot a bunch of things. So, um, so those of you who are waiting for reimbursements and stuff, I have them, I just don't have them, so I will get them. Um, and then Jesse's birthday gift is still on my desk. Um... <laughs> I, I had the excuse of woozle last week, but this week there is no excuse. Um, that was just wildness and just me running out of the house. So apologies for that, uh, but we will definitely get that to you. Um, and then just an announcement. Like, I, I, I realized I didn't announce this, but I, I ought to. Um, and then if you have any, like, you know, concerns, like, I disagree with this decision, right, then let me know. Um, but we had Grace and Victoria uh, appointed as our financial officers for our EM. Uh, so what this means is um, they will handle um, all of our offerings being sent into the on the EM side, so just the English ministry side. So all they're doing is just recording on a, on an Excel sheet the offerings that are coming in. And no, they're like this was Mikey's concern. They're not judging you, right, on your offering or anything like that. Um, there, are, there are guidelines, obviously, and obviously confidentiality. Everything has been um, explained to them, so you don't have to worry about anything like that. Uh, but if you have any questions, just, you know, let us know. 
Um, later on, uh, once we do formal membership and then actually like, for praise team and everything, like we're going to have to actually do like perhaps like a little bit of voting uh, as a church to appoint such people into positions of leadership in the church. So when that comes, you can do so. But right now it's kind of like a, you know, volunteer basis. And so if you have concern or you're like, wait, I want to be in on that finance team. Like, let me, just let me know. Right. Uh, but we do, we do always have both of them present together in doing finance so that there's transparency and nothing, um, nothing you have to worry about. Right. And it's like kind of Grace's job to do like finance stuff. So it's like, you can kind of trust her like with the numbers crunching. Yeah. Much better than, you know, me doing it. So just, uh, keep that in mind. Um, uh, so if you have any questions about that area or that aspect of uh, our church as it grows, and we're going to need more and more people in different departments, uh, please let me know. So if you have any questions or concerns, please reach out. Uh, with that said, let's rise and off the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Please feel free to greet one another. And then uh, we can head over for food, the other building. <laughs>